1: affiliate links, and that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention.
0: So things in our life are constantly changing. And if you look around at the people around you, they're not the ones that you were sitting at the last Monday if you came or will be next, this moment's never going to be repeated, ever. In all these galaxies and amazing universes, each moment is completely new, and then it changes into another one, never to be repeated. To sit is to allow a spaciousness, a kind of dignity, where you can look around and say, Hmm, Here we are in this world. And instead of reacting out of fear, or aversion, or grasping, or confusion, to have a moment of space that say, oh, look at this, how do I want to live? How might I live wisely? And not even 10 minutes, even a quick breath, three breaths. You're caught in something, and you take a few breaths, and you realize, oh, I was really caught in that, wasn't I? And then the awareness starts to come, oh, that's what the mind does, and here's the space of awareness that notices it. So mindfulness and meditation isn't a grim duty. It's really an invitation to presence and graciousness. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, When you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, then you experience nirvana. Nirvana isn't in the Himalayas and it's not some great state to attain. It's the composure in the midst of things as they are. Praise and blame and gain and loss and breathing in and out and joy and sorrow. And you take your seat as the Buddha and say, yes, as the wise one, this is the way that it is. So wisdom is gracious. And it sees the way things are. The body's like this. It has certain pleasures, lovely. It has certain pains, it does. If you have a body, you'll have pain. It also ages, if you haven't noticed. It's what happens when you have a body. This is what the body is like. This is what the personality is like. Oh, dear. Right? (laughs) The habits, the fears, and so forth. This is what a family is like. Have you noticed? Now, Buddha and Jesus both had trouble with their families, so you're not alone, right? But the wisdom part of you says, oh, this is what a family is. It has these qualities and it has those qualities. Have you noticed? Wisdom says this is what politics are like. You might wish that they weren't like that, but this is the way politics actually are. So wisdom starts to see things the way they are, changing, unable to be grasped, pleasure, pain, gain, and loss. Nothing can be repeated. And wisdom also then becomes, in that graciousness, able to not just endure, but bear in a wise way the troubles of life. In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, you pray for difficulties. You say, grant me enough trouble and difficulty that true compassion and understanding will grow in me. Because where does it grow often? It's going through the hard things, right? So Dujim Rimache, who is a very famous Tibetan Lama, kind of on the level of, for for some people in Tibet, of the Dalai Lama. He was in New York City um, with a retinue at times and with some friends some years ago, and was out in the street one evening with one person, was taking him somewhere. And a mugger came up to him and pulled out a gun. And Dujram Rinpoche started to laugh. And he said, oh, New York City, I heard about people being held up. This is so interesting, you know? This is the New York experience, right? Families are like this. I'm I'm not dissing New York, by the way. It happens elsewhere, too. Families are like this. Politics is like this. And sometimes urban life is like that. And he just laughed. And the guy turned around and walked away, like, what can you do with somebody like that who's laughing at my gun, you know? So wisdom... Has a kind of humor to it because it sees the, uh, what to say, it sees the human predicament, you know, that there's magnificence and an ocean of tears and incredible folly and tremendous creativity, and we contain all of that. Individually, we have it in us, and and our our human lot has this in us. And it's honest. I was reading about Nelson Mandela, one of the people I wish I had met and people I most admire. Um, And last year, when I had the chance to go. To be on the Oprah Winfrey Show, which was kind of fun, and I got a call, you know, do you want to do a show with Oprah? Sure. Thinking, well, all right, Chicago, it's summertime, but I'll do it. And they said, would you mind? Oprah's at her place in Maui. Would you mind going to Hawaii? To it's okay, anyway. So, I went with my beloved Trudy, and um, also with Annie Lamott, who's a good friend who was on the, the same day. Um, for a different shoot um and after the sh- after the show we were invited to dinner with oprah and I thought well what to talk about and um so i asked her about nelson mandela because i knew she'd been close to him and she said oh i had 29 meals with nelson it was like her guru she was so and she had all these wonderful stories some of which i told when i came back you know he talked about his, they talked about their dogs, and they talked about all kinds of things. And she said, you know, I was thinking that the thing that matters most is education in Africa. and If only the girls and women could get educated. I was thinking maybe I'll start a school. And she said, without taking a breath, Nelson picked up the phone. And he said, um, get me the minister of education. Please send him over. Oprah's going to start a school. She said, that, that's how fast. It, you know. He got things done, but anyway. So um, he was this very gracious, amazing human being, so I was reading about him recently, um, and I read that he'd had a few different state visits in europe as the as the President of South Africa, including having time with the Queen of England with Queen Elizabeth. But as I read about it, and he was described. Um, he didn't call her your majesty he called her Elizabeth he said she calls me Nelson why shouldn't I call her Elizabeth you know and then as I read this other article in the magazine he said you know he, he, he uh, met her at one point a few couple times later he said you know your majesty looks or Elizabeth looks like you've lost weight you really have quite a nice figure he then said I wanted to say something to her that perhaps no one had said before you know and, and she enjoyed it you know and when you hear it, and you think about who have you met that's wise, part of what's being wise is really being true to yourself and not worrying so much what other people are thinking or how it's supposed to be. There's a kind of trust to just be the human being that you are, with a graciousness and an acceptance and a and a kind of wholeness that is just your nature. Little story. Every month, the disciple, who was sent away after years of training, faithfully sent his master an account of his spiritual progress. In the first month, he wrote, I feel an expansion of consciousness and experience oneness with the universe. The master glanced at the note, threw it away. Two months later, he received a note, I finally discovered the holiness that is present in all things. The master seemed disappointed, crumbled it, and threw it in the trash. In his third letter, two months later, the disciple enthusiastically explained, the mystery of the one and the many has been revealed to my wondering gaze. The master yawned. Next letter said, no one is born. No one dies. No one lives. The self is not. The master threw this into the trash and threw his hands up in despair. (laughs) Months passed, then a year second year. The master thought it was time to remind his disciple that he had promised to keep him informed of his spiritual progress. The disciple wrote back, who cares what you think? (laughs) When the master read these words, a great look of satisfaction spread over his face. Thank God he's got it at last. (laughs) So we can use our spiritual practice in some ideal way to think that you're going to become somebody else, to tune up your personality and you know, it's, it's like going to the gym and getting therapy and working out and, you know, having a good diet and all that stuff is a grim duty. But it's not about that. Yes, you can use it to quiet yourself and steady attention, it's a beautiful thing. But it's really more becoming yourself and trusting yourself and, and looking around and saying, here we are in this human mystery, then what? You get quiet. You listen to yourself. You respect your body more. Pay attention to your own feelings. You don't take yourself so seriously, some sense of humor about it all. And when you see the things the way they are, then what do you do? You know, you take a look. And you say, well, in Zen, the saying is there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. So you quiet the mind and you look around and you say, wow, human incarnation, praise and blame and joy and sorrow. I can be gracious with this. I can find my way. And now what to do? You get up and you sweep the garden. Then sweep the garden of the world. So wisdom first allows you to become yourself, to see what a human life is with a body and thoughts and feelings and personality and not be so caught in the Reaction to it and the fears and the judgments and so forth, but to be gracious and kind. And then as you get quieter, you also see that it's not just you, but everybody is the same, where in fact you start to see the connection with everything else. And so there grows a respect not just for yourself, but for the earth, for the people around you. And if you want to be happy, wisdom says treat others well. Happiness, freedom, and peace are attained by giving them to others. Not only finding in yourself, but and you offer that to someone else, that really fulfills the attainment of them. So you quiet yourself, you say, well, this is who I am. This is the body I got. I wish it had more fur, but it doesn't. You know, what can you do? It's how it is. You know, and these are the this is the personality in sitting this last week, I could see my personality, some parts are charming, some parts are not it's just how personalities are right um, and this is conditioning, this is family, and this is the way the world is and then once you can find this space of acceptance and love. <laughs> then there grows quite naturally a sense of respect. Respect for yourself, respect for others. Keep feeling, says Martin Luther King, keep feeling the need for being first. But I want you to be the first in love. I want you to be the first in moral excellence. I want you to be the first in generosity. And so once you start to feel the sense of wisdom that means you are who you are, and you can own that and inhabit your life that you've been given with some graciousness and some ease, then you realize that if you want to truly be happy, you also treat others with dignity and respect. You don't harm them. And in that way, you also don't harm yourself. And then, what else to do? You take that wisdom, the candle you have, and you... Light somebody else's candle, somebody's in trouble, and you say, if you look around and the person sitting next to you were weeping or struggling or going through some, some tragedy, almost immediately you would be, you'd be turning to them and say, it's okay, or you'd somehow try to be reassuring. It's so natural to us. And so if you have a candle and it's lit and you can see, oh, this is the way the mind and body is, I mean, we might have our ideals, but this is actually the way life is, You have this, and you say, here, take a look. You can see yourself, and then they can light other people's candles, and pretty soon the room gets illuminated. Not for yourself, but because you sense yourself part of something bigger. The true joy of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit to be able to add something to the world, not because it's something for you as the separate small self, but because you sense yourself as part of something bigger. And it's what makes us happy. And when you do offer something to another, not because you're supposed to, or, you know, I mean, generosity also because our minds are complicated. You do something nice and you think, well, isn't I a great person to do that? And then you feel a little pride, and then you feel a little shame, like, I shouldn't feel that, maybe I shouldn't have done that. You know, the mind does all that stuff. But you do it anyway. And it said, the fragrance remains in the hand that gives the rose. That somehow, simply by doing it, something beautiful comes with you and someone else. And it's it's in every gesture in that way. So you sit, and then you tend the garden. And there comes somehow in this, as you get quiet, a sense of blessing. A few days ago, in the evening, late in a two-month retreat, a silent retreat, this person wrote me a note, I was sitting quietly in the back of the meditation hall, and it was raining and the room was dark. People have been there for six weeks or so in silence, everyone sitting very quietly And the room was dark except for candles on the altar. And it felt like we were all camped out around a sacred fire. And everyone sat so still, and my breath almost stopped. And then I wondered what it was, the feeling. And then I realized, oh, this is contentment. There was nowhere else on earth I wanted to be. No one else I wanted to be with. I was peaceful and deeply silent. All my struggles had dropped away, and I was content. I felt myself truly blessed. And all of a sudden, it felt like the blessings couldn't contain themselves, and I began blessing everyone in the room one by one, their backs or the back of their heads or even the ones I couldn't see so well. I would shoot some blessings around a chair or into a leg or a hand until I got everyone in the room. And we sat in a sea of blessings until the bell rang, and I've been smiling ever since then. So it's that. You know, you quiet and you listen, look around and say, here we are, humans. And then this sense of connection and blessing comes. And it's so innate and so natural to us when we're still. I have a friend who's um, got cancer and is in the last stages in hospice. Really a lovely man. And all around him is this outpouring of love. He's a he's a person that touched quite a few lives. And so people from all over are sending messages and gifts. You can't really give very much to a person who's dying, can you? They can't take it with them exactly. Um, but gifts of, of caring and poems and whatever they can do, this great outpouring, uh, which is beautiful to see. And the only thing I can had to is, why wait? You know, why wait till somebody's at that point? There are all these people in our lives, and why not shoot some blessings today, you know? Or send them, or whatever the, whatever it is, that outpouring of love. Because as you get quiet, and as you get wiser, the sense of connection grows, or the sense of separation dissolves some. And we all know it. You know it from walking in the mountains, and listening to sacred music and Sitting at the side of someone who's dying as I've talked about or being there for the birth of a Child or taking some sacred medicine or all kinds of ways that we open to it Um, And I think in a way that the people that I admire and that you know the ones that are these kind of icons in the world like the Dalai Lama, Nang Sang Suchi, or my teacher Gosananda, who is the Gandhi of Cambodia, there's something about their sense of wonder and, and their ability to feel a, a kind of mystery and connection with life that we all resonate with, you know. And being around the Dalai Lama, he's really such a lover of life and be what well, he's interested in things when he meets somebody he's interested when you see something new he's interested in there's some way in which he takes delight in life itself um, and he has this amazing laugh it's the laughter of the wise he says yes I've suffered yes we all go through difficult things but that's not the end of the story there's something in us our spirit that is so much freer than that and even when you do go through difficulties this from Carl Fried Durkheim, a Zen teacher, who says, the person who is truly on the way, when they fall upon hard times in the world, will not, as a consequence, turn to those friends who offer refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather, they'll seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. For only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in them. In this daring lies dignity in the spirit of true awakening." And so you will have hard times, and you will have difficulty. Um, And the practice in meditation gives you the courage, um, the, the tolerance, the graciousness to be with what's beautiful. Some people find what's joyful difficult. It scares them. Pleasure is scary to some people. And to find that which is painful and grievous and which you also will have and say, this is our humanity, and to be able to carry that dignity and that courage in the midst of it all. Now, you might say, well, this is all speaking very personally, but what about continuing warfare? Syria and Iraq and South Sudan and Central Africa and not just those places, but war in our own streets, many places. You know, what about continuing racism and Injustice, what about the prison system? And as I've said, when my friend Wes Nisker went to visit and talked to Gary Snyder, a great environmentalist and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, and said, Gary, you're 84 years old, you've been an environmentalist for more than half a century, and now you see global warming, loss of species, all these terrible environmental disasters... What advice do you have to us at this point? And he looked up and he said, don't feel guilty. He said, if you're going to save it, save it because you love it. Not out of guilt, not out of anger, not out of all those things are part of the destructive energy. But look with the eyes of wisdom. And this is your planet and your earth and your species and your life. And save it because you love it. And so as you get quiet this understanding grows that the world needs a transformation that's not just the transformation of technology, of nanotechnology and biotechnology and all these new things that I was talking about. It equally much needs a transformation of heart, that all those things, the war and the racism and the destruction, come from greed and hatred and fear and confusion. And wisdom sees the difference between Pain and suffering. Pain is part of life. Everybody has pain. Loss is part of life. Change is a part of life. But suffering is when we react to the difficult things or fear them and create the body of fear. And then we grasp and there's greed and we're hatred and we cling to our views and we try to protect ourselves in unskillful ways and we get resentful. We can make a thousand kinds of suffering. Or, says the Buddha, you can take this human life you're given and find a wisdom in it instead of reacting with hatred or greed or prejudice or grasping and so forth with forgiveness, with graciousness, with compassion, because we're all in it together. And what's mysterious really is the question of who are you? Identity, you know, we have our personality and our life story, but it's changing and we can identify with different parts of it. If you're a child, let's say you're a kid on the playground in elementary school, when the teacher comes out, you're the student and that's your teacher. When your parents come to pick you up, you're the kid and that's your parents. When your parents and the teacher go away, then you know, you're another kid with the other ones and you're not in that role of being the student. You're not in that role of being the, the son or daughter. Um, you go to work and you take a certain role, right? Maybe you're a teacher or an artist or a, maybe you go in law enforcement. You work in San Quentin, you're a guard, okay? But if you go home to your family and you can't put down that role of being the guard, you're not going to be a very good spouse. You're not going to be a very good parent because your children don't need a prison guard or your spouse doesn't need that, right? So you have to be able to enter roles and then let them go. And then your personality... You know, we have different parts of our personality, the worried part and the heroic part and the contemplative part and the social part. And you see all those things. This is personality. And then you have the parts you play in the culture, the roles you've been given in your tasks and so forth. But who are you? Because you keep changing. They say in Bali that the people who are closest to the gods are young children, just born, The first six months of life, they don't let them touch the earth. They just hold them and carry them, which makes very happy children. Or the people right at the end of life, and that the people who are farthest from the gods are middle-aged people with mortgages, basically. (laughs) Because you forget that you're only here for a little while, that you were born into this body with some mysterious spirit, and you get to navigate this life and I've been thinking about it a lot as I was sitting also, because my dear friend Christina Groff just died a couple of weeks ago. And Angelus sarian another good friend and colleague, died a couple of months before that. My mom died not long before that. Other friends and so forth. And Christina, I traveled around the world with Christina and her husband, Stan. And she was one of the, the founder of holotropic breathwork. And we spent time with shamans doing peyote ceremonies and visiting You know, amazing temples in Russia and um, parts of Asia. We traveled with swamis and Zen masters. And and she was, you know, she was really interested in what brought human beings to compassion. More than anything, what brought a kind of wisdom in the midst of all the changes of life. So she was playful and and, uh, gracious. Um, And now she's not here. And death is natural. And it's also frightening, isn't it? Because we take ourselves to be this separate self. And that's also natural. You think you're not supposed to have those feelings? Oh, I'll be so calm. I'll be the, like the great Zen masters. you read those stories, right, and not be afraid. Maybe. But maybe not. As Ram Dass said, he'd flunked the course a few times himself. <laughs> I too, I thought, oh, I'm really good with death, and then, yeah, on a good day. But the body doesn't like it very much. It wants to stay alive. Loves this life, really, this incarnation. So my teacher Ajahn Chah, who was a wise, wonderful being, the kind of the, when I think of the laughter of the wise, he had this great laughter. Um, He went to see his meditation master and told him about all the meditation experiences that he'd had. He did years of practice and found this most famous old master living up in the mountains in Laos. Finally got to see him, told him about all the experiences, waited for some response, and the master said, you've missed the point. It's not about any experience, dissolving your body in light, having some you know, beautiful sense of cosmic oneness, like that story I read, or not. He said, the question is, to whom does this happen? Who's listening to these words as I speak? Who's, you know, and they're touching your eardrum and going to the auditory part of your brain. But who is it that's actually listening? Who was born in your body? Mysterious. And if you have that privilege of sitting next to someone who's dying at the moment they die, and they go from being this warm person that's still conscious in some way, and then it's, it's not that, and then it's just meat. Then it's just dead body and spirit gone. It's extraordinary. And it's like these worlds open up. And this is us. You know, this is our predicament as human beings and then what does it mean to live this you can live in ways that create fear and tightness and confusion or you can say this is what incarnation is with a graciousness and a forgiveness and so he Ajahn Chah's teacher said the real practice is to look back into the awareness itself and say who am I And when you do, you start to realize that who you are is awareness itself, is loving awareness. And I like to use the image of looking in the mirror. And when you look in the mirror, you notice you've aged, right, talk about this, but you don't necessarily feel older. And that's because, it's a common feeling, that's because it's only your body that's aged. So you look in the mirror. Notice it's wrinkling and drooping and sagging and, you know, spotting and doing all the stuff it does, doesn't it? Let's be honest about this, right? Losing its fur and whatever, it does its thing. But you don't feel older because it's only your body that's aged. And something that's witnessing it, that's looking and saying, hmm, let's see, we've gotten through this many years is what it looks like, isn't it? Some part is the witnessing consciousness that says, oh, look at this life. And that awareness, which is who you really are, is wisdom. You could say wisdom is the the wisdom heart, is the wisdom mind, is that loving awareness that sees the way things are and gets caught in things and then all of a sudden goes, oh, caught in that. That's not who I am. Look at that. Now we're going through this, and that's like you're in Disneyland, you know. You've taken a, quite a ride. And say, wow, this is something, isn't it? But the wisdom place in you is this loving awareness that can witness it all. Mm-hmm. Listen to this kids out there. It's beautiful. You heard the crow talking while we were sitting. All those great Zen poems about the crows speaking, we just don't know their language, saying something to us. And so wisdom wisdom allows you to open to the way things are, but it's not a state, it's not something you get, and it's certainly not clinging, it's an invitation to joy, it's an invitation to well-being. You start with mindfulness and compassion grows quite naturally because we're all in it. And then there comes a kind of trust. You do trust, you know, sense the trust you have. You go to sleep on trust that you're going to wake up, right? I mean, that's a trusting act. I'm going to throw down, give away my plans and my memories, my personality, my to-do list, all the things, my desires, my fears, and so forth. I just like a good night's sleep, thank you. Isn't that fantastic? And you're quite willing to put it all down. That's a lot of trust. You have lots of trust. Every time you get in a car, there's a lot of trust. It is that people are going to stay on the other side of those little yellow lines, right? Because they don't have to, and it's just one little turn. But you trust. You know, you trust when you eat and you drink that your body will know how to use all of that. You live with trust. And wisdom knows this. Wisdom sees that happiness comes from trust and graciousness and a kind of courage to be present, and that this is your birthright. This is who you really are, your Buddha nature. So when you sit, you return to this and you say, I take my seat under the tree of enlightenment with the joys and sorrows and praise and blame with an open heart of compassion. Look at this life. And then you get up from sitting and you sweep the garden and you tend the world because it's not somebody else's world, it's yours. This is the president of the United States, quote, I've been moved by the timeless ideal of metta, the belief that our time on this earth can be defined by tolerance and love. I've been waiting for our president to understand metta for quite a few (laughs) decades now. So it's actually quite delightful that he knows the word. You do trust. Yes, anxiety comes too and fear and things like that, but that's not who you are. You're not your fears. You're not the small sense of self. You are the loving awareness itself. And with this understanding, and I'm not saying you have to believe it, the loving awareness is what's listening. You have it. You are it. It's not like you have to get something. You remember, you trust, you rest in it, and with this you become what um, Diana Kerman called an architect of wonder, an architect of wonder and an emissary of peace. May the nourishment of the earth be yours, may the clarity of light be yours, may the fluency of the ocean be yours, may the protection of the ancestor be yours, may the graciousness of wisdom be yours, and so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to tend your life. This is from John O'Donoghue, a blessing. When you think about those who you know who are wise, their laughter, their graciousness, their flexibility, their not clinging to their views so much, their loving hearts, first, it's a beautiful thing to remember, isn't it? could be the person sitting next to you, someone really wise. <clears throat> but the best part of all is that it could be you and that the invitation of these teachings is to remember this and to realize that with your own dignity and your own love, your own courage and compassion, which you have, which you were born with, which you can trust. With your own wisdom, you can live this life beautifully. Um, and that's really the message from the, these teachings of thousands of years. It's in your good hands. It's in your lap. It's in your own heart. And the practices and things are just reminders of what's possible. So let's sit for a moment.
1: Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com/slash Jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.